Hi, I'm Ken Sweeney. This is The Comfortable Spot. Welcome. I love listening to podcasts and there are a few podcasts that I would like you to know about. So every now and then I'm going to put an ad in before the show starts. These are not sponsored ads. These guys don't pay me to do this. I just really like the podcasts. So I hope you can take a chance with them as well. They're just a minute or two long, so they won't take up too much of your time. So have a listen and see what you think. Hey there, fellow Trekkies. I'm Mike. And I'm your co-host DK. And together we're your guides through the vast universe of Star Trek. That's right. On Hit or Miss Star Trek, we're exploring the entire galaxy, from the classic series to the latest movies and everything in between. We're bringing you honest but always respectful reviews of your favourite episodes and movies. We're not afraid to ask the tough questions or share our candid thoughts, but we do it with the love and respect this franchise deserves. Plus, we've got some fantastic guests on board. You'll hear from fellow Trekkies, social media sensations, and even some people working within the Star Trek universe. We had a blast talking about our favourite Star Trek moments with guests like Picard production designer Dave Blass, animated series writer Fred Bronson, and so many more. And of course, there's the geeking out. We can't help it. We're Trekkies through and through. We'll dive into the minutiae of the Trek universe, debate the Prime Directive, and laugh about the best bloopers. (laughs) It's all about the camaraderie here. We're building a community of Starfleet fans who share our passion and enthusiasm. We're not just a podcast, we're a crew. So join us on the Hit or Miss Star Trek YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's explore the final frontier together. Subscribe now and remember, whether it's a hit or a miss, it's always an adventure when you're part of Starfleet. Today, my guest is Kyla Gabrielle. Kyla is a first year's master's student at Queen's University, Ontario, Canada, studying immunology and cancer therapeutics. In her spare time, Kyla is a contributing writer for the Average Scientist Project, whose goal it is to make science accessible to all. I invited Kyla to join me as a guest to chat about her passion for molecular biology and discuss the field of medical science in general. So I hope you're sitting comfortably and happy to stay with us. Kyla, how are you? Thanks for joining me on The Comfortable Spot. Hi, thank you for having me. We kind of came, came across each other through the um, Average Scientist project. Now, I think stuff like this is really brilliant because it, it gives an opportunity for lay people like me to get introduced more to science and the STEMs. And also it probably gives people like yourself an opportunity to write for an audience that you probably would have never even considered, never mind getting access to. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about The Average Scientist and what you guys do and what's your kind of goal in this way? Yeah, so I got involved with The Average Scientist through, actually through LinkedIn. I saw um, one of my connections had um, got involved with them doing some writing and they were calling out for some writers. So I reached out and they said I could write some articles for them. And it's been months of that and it's been great. Um, so what the average scientist does is they kind of try to make, make science as accessible as possible. So for, especially for young people, um, and just the general public trying to make science as engaging, um, and captivating as possible. So there's a lot of different writers and we cover a lot of different, um, disciplines. So I focus on molecular biology, um, kind of fields but we have people in you know 
space and anthropology and there's a few articles on dentistry which are great um and we really just try to relate scientific concepts to the general public in a way that's easily digestible and concise um and try to get people interested and is it volunteer work for yourself yes yep it's, uh, it's all volunteer work uh as far as i know i'm, I'm pretty certain everyone currently is a volunteer yeah. So, I mean, because, you know, I've been involved in organizations like that before, you know, some of them being more media organizations. And, the, and you know, you, the, the trouble is that people move on, they get a life, they have kids or whatever, they get a new job or whatever, and it's hard to do that. So the, I suppose with the average scientist that the goal is to kind of bring in new people all the time. So I presume they're always on the lookout for new writers and so on. We've had a few new writers recently join us and they're they're writing some great articles. Yeah, so. So it's important in that way because I'll make sure it's in the show notes as well. But you can get them on the averagescientist.co.uk. Yes. Now, come here. I have to ask you, what's it like working with a load of English people? Is it very, is it very posh or very, uh, very weird? <laughs> um, no, honestly, um, the Ian Hall, who's the founder of Average Scientist, has been great. Um, he's very encouraging and, you know, just I couldn't ask to work with someone better. Um, and, and everyone, there's a few Canadians also there's kind of all over the place, but, um, no, it's been great. It's been great. So tell me now, let's get, get on to you now. Um, you're a first year master's student at Queens university in Ontario, Canada. Am I correct in that? Yes. Okay. Yes. So yes. yeah, so your, your main, your main study is immunology and cancer therapeutics. And you're trying, I can't remember this now, you're competing, completing a BSc at the university of Guelph. Is it Ontario as well? Yes. Yeah. So I um, just graduated a few months ago from the University of Guelph with my Bachelor of Science in Molecular. So my major was Molecular Biology and Genetics, and then I minored in um, Microbiology. Right. And yeah, so now I'm over at Queen's University and I'm doing um, my first year master's in biomedical and molecular sciences. Okay, this is not something that you just like kind of stumble into. You kind of say one week you're going to do history or the next week you're going to do political science. That can happen, right? <laughs> media stuff, yeah. media guys do that all the time. They switch between stuff throughout each year. So you must have had a clear idea what you want to do very early on. Yeah, so um, I first got involved or not involved, rather interested in molecular biology when I was in high school. Um, when I was in grade 11, I did a biology research paper on CRISPR gene editing, which was, it was difficult at first because it was, I was reading all these peer-reviewed articles that were way beyond my scope of expertise, but I had a really great teacher who encouraged me to, you know, not switch topics. And I wrote it and I ended up being extremely fascinated in genetic engineering and just the possibilities we see there for future therapies. So then from there, when deciding, you know, what to do for university, I decided to major in molecular biology and genetics so that I can learn more about that field. And so that's how I kind of got involved in molecular biology, um, which is a very broad term too. Like it's, it is a very um, overreaching kind of field. So from there, I got more interested in immunology, um, essentially just from taking a third year immunology course um, in my undergrad. So I had a really passionate professor um, and they really opened my eyes to how um, there are so many opportunities in immunological research. So this was the first time I really got exposed to immunotherapy and cancer um, and how we can kind of um, manipulate that immune system to fight malignancies. 
yeah, because I, I just I want I want to just slow down for a second here because I'm trying to write mm. things down here now. I I I love science fiction, so a lot of these terms come up a lot. But um, I, if somebody was to ask me in a bar, can you explain what molecular biology is? I'd probably end up doing something that, you know, Dr. McCoy in Star Trek talks about, which is complete nonsense. So maybe you can explain the role of mo- molecular biology in kind of like, so we can keep it kind of tight. So understand, you spoke about cancer therapeutics there and immunotherapy. So maybe you could tell us what is the role of molecular biology in developing cancer therapeutics for a start? So how do they work? First of all, cancer therapeutics and molecular biology are both such you know, vast concepts. Molecular biology essentially encompasses any biology that we can think of at the molecular level. So, I mean, cancer doesn't always exist as a large mass that, you know, you feel on your side. It starts as a small section or even one highly mutated cell. Um, So in an ideal world, when we're talking about cancer therapeutics for immunotherapy, in an ideal world, our natural immune system would attack those singular mutated cancer cells before they can become a big tumor mass. So what you're looking to do is you get one prevention rather than cure. Um, it is more it is more in cure because it we're, when we do immunotherapies, we're doing them once someone has already been diagnosed. Oh, I see. So okay. oftentimes you're going to remove a tumor um, and there'll be some residual cells, right? A tumor, unless you can, you know, remove the whole, whole organ, which can't but in in most cases you can but in my field we look at bladder cancer or in my research we look at bladder cancer typical treatment is removing the tumor from the bladder as long as it's non it hasn't invaded the muscle so initial stages we remove the tumor tumor rather physicians remove the tumor and any residual cancer cells which at that point would be kind of a molecular approach because we can't see those which is why we can't resect them so those residual cancer cells are then going to be what we're trying to remove using immunotherapy. So we're essentially trying to give the immune system a leg up on getting rid of those residual cells because cancer cells express very specific genes that allow them to evade or inhibit our immune system. So we're essentially trying to help those immune cells get past those barriers and clear the rest of the cancer. I see. Because so that's when somebody's in kind of remission, isn't it? Because you're kind of waiting to see whether that's going to develop into something more um, potent or more dangerous. Yes. Grant. Yeah. So you're trying to get at, you're at that secondary point where the operation has happened, the, the bulk of it is gone, the visual aspect, what you can see, what's there, the damage is gone. And now you're just waiting to see how it's going to react in the body. Right. Yeah. So that's in the context of bladder cancer. There are other immunotherapies that, you know, are are um, administered in kind of like with other treatments um, like chemotherapies and things like that Um, because cancer cells again the the study of cancer is inherently molecular biology because you have to understand the genetic and you know the the protein expression and mRNA expression um, levels of all like these cancer cells otherwise you can't treat them each cancer is different and you need to kind of tailor um, your therapy to the cancer and what it's doing to the body. Uh, Just on a kind of a social aspect of it, I mean, is there any kind of trends or is there any, um, you know, evidence to show that you know, cancer is is something that it's it's kind of a it's a roll of the dice or or do we all have it in us and it just reacts in different ways? Every single cell has DNA and that DNA in any cell is able to mutate. That being said, some people have mutations that 
already inherent and are are um, inherited from their parents. So like a really good example is with breast cancer. There's the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes that if you have a specific mutation in those genes, you have a higher likelihood for breast cancer and cervical cancer. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it, um, but it just means you have a higher chance. But yeah, like certain environmental aspects, like, you know, we all hear about the sun and skin cancer. The sun is an is a mutagen. It's going to mutate skin cells, mutate the DNA within skin cells, which could lead to cancer. But it it's essentially relies on, it's, a, it's, it's a, essentially how many mutations do you have? One mutation isn't always going to cause cancer. So, but uh, so realistically, when people, you know, when doctors and medical people say to you, "Live a healthy life, don't go out in the sun too much, eat plenty of healthy foods," you know, you're really setting down a, a kind of a, a grounding or um, a basis for prevention, isn't it? It does help. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, there are a lot of other factors that go into cancer, um, and uh, leading a healthy lifestyle is going to counteract a lot of those you know it's it's funny because people even over after say what 60 years of realizing that smoking can can cause lung cancer so many people still do it so it's maybe that's the real flaw in human beings rather than the medic or the actual physical side of it i don't really know but um i'm just curious yeah i'm curious how you approach translating say complex scientific concepts i mean you just explained it there to me pretty well and i, I feel like in the last two minutes i know a bit more than what i didn't know i'm just wondering you know in terms of a broader audiences for stuff like this on our podcast do you come across that that's becoming more and more difficult because you know with the advent of the internet everyone's a bit of an expert aren't they so do you find that when you're say in these sort of contexts that it's more difficult to explain to people or is it easier um i would say it's probably a little bit easier to explain these broader things um just because i think as a general society we're a lot more informed so um you know maybe explaining to my grandparents that they should finish their antibiotic courses is going to be a little bit more difficult in convincing them than trying to explain to my parents. Um, I think we've just kind of gotten a lot more informed as a society um, with the advent of the internet. But I, I mean, there are certain concepts that are still extremely, <laughs> extremely complicated that you really do need to trim down to explain mm, and of course we we have trouble as well with the internet giving us you know causing the rise of fake news which is kind of seems old-fashioned to say it that way now but we saw mm -hmm. that in COVID, in that there were so many people out there who just didn't believe that getting you know vaccine was a good thing and then it just went crazy it just went from vaccines can give you side effects to micro machines inside the vaccine that are controlling us per you know through television can, can antennas and, and mobile phones antennas it was just insane somebody like you watching that as a young person you must have been looking at that going where did that start i think especially with the vaccines and covid i don't want to you know speak to it too much because i'm not the you know expert on this but um, I think with that, it is kind of, there is just a general mistrust in um, science and physicians um, in certain fields and, and, you know, in certain aspects, talking about certain things. Um, so I think the vaccines are a good example of how we, certain people, can be um, misinformed based off of, you know, I, I think a big issue is just kind of reading, reading headlines and just reading uh, titles. And I think that happens for, you know, people on both sides of, you know, 
uh, a scientific kind of breakthrough, whether you agree with it, you don't agree with it, you believe it, you don't. I think reading only a headline is a problem. Um, and you're just inherently less informed when you do that. But yeah. I think you've nailed it there because it we as in media, this the same issue. Um, like, for example, we had a big issue here in Europe over the last five years where Britain is leaving the European Union. And as a person involved in media, I've been involved in media for about 10 years now. And what what's happened with there was that people were just reading the headlines, you know, and that's how social mm -hmm. media was working, because the actual structural design of Twitter and particularly Facebook at that time, because they were the two key, um, you know, drivers at that point, like 10 years ago. And when you opened your Facebook feed, you know, you just had the headline. If somebody sent you or shared with you an article from, um, you know, Politico or from the New York Times, just you'd only see the headline. And, you know, most mm -hmm. people then would comment on that headline. So what would happen is the discussion below that that post would begin to develop and it would develop completely based on on the headline. And I find that this was the issue as well with COVID. I mean, uh, you know, people were just looking, putting up these crazy kind of blogs that they might find somewhere in deep in the in the heart of the, the old internet. And they'd pull it out and the headline would say, you know, um, you're running a risk of getting cancer, for example, if you get, uh, that's the, the big boogeyman. You get cancer if you get this, uh, this vaccine. And that headline alone would just bring in so many people who are probably you know the, the reason they're doing is because they want to play a part they want to make their their interests be known and as you say it just gets completely out of hand so it must be very frustrating for people you know in in the, your industry or in your degree in your uh, stem to, to have to deal with this as well as trying to develop new ways because i'm wondering if it affects stuff like funding then doesn't it um so I haven't personally um, applied uh, to any grants for like funding for research. I mean, I'm in the process of applying for a personal grant for my own research, but I haven't actually submitted that yet and all that. But um, I know with the grant process, it is um, it's reviewed by other professionals. So it's, you know, I, I think that that might be not as much of a concern just because it's reviewed by other professionals and they have to, you know, go through the literature, go through um all the you know relevant sources that can you know inform the decision on whether the research is worth putting money into um but yeah i haven't had too much experience with you know the grant and the funding side of research so um, it could be but i i think that it would be more of an issue and just look looking to have discussions with the public so when we talk about these type of medicines and treatments, in just sticking to your field, of course, how do you see molecular biology and immunology playing key roles in tailoring therapies to individual patients? Are we are we on the cusp of a major break breakthrough, or is it just slow and steady steps all the way? Huh. Okay. Well, I think that it's already playing a, a decent least a decent role. Um, I mean, of course, I'm not um, on the clinical side of things. I'm really just in the lab and um, not seeing patients or anything. So I can't exactly say how large of a role it's already playing. But even just looking through the literature, we can already look at certain biomarkers of immune cell function or the tumor microenvironment, which would be, you know, uh, any proteins that the tumor is releasing or, you know, how much oxygen is in the tu uh, like tumor to estimate how a patient would respond to a treatment. So for example, if you know, an individual's cancer is secreting or expressing specific molecules that are going to inhibit the immune response. 
well, a healthcare provider might eventually be able to tailor or add to that treatment regimen in order to prevent those molecules, those tumors, from negatively impacting the immune cell. So it's kind of looking at immunotherapy in, in that example. We would say, okay, well, you you can will administer the immunotherapy, but then we'll also administer this, um, you know, other drug that will counteract what this tumor is doing. That will kind of enhance the ability of the immunotherapy to work. But I think research in immunology is a really key factor in determining how we can optimize those immunotherapies and develop more. Um, so I, I would say it is like a more step, stepwise process rather than, you know, a huge breakthrough. Because with every huge breakthrough, there leads to more questions and then more stepwise to get kind of back to that next big breakthrough. So it is, it's a little bit of both, but I would be more inclined to say it's more stepwise. Yeah, it's true because I think people are just waiting for us. You know, they're waiting for the cure for cancer. And, you know, yeah. we used to think this uh, maybe 20 or 30 years ago in a simplified form that there would be just one general vaccine that you could have. But of course, as you just spoke there and as more people are becoming more informed, because people obviously are suffering from different forms of cancer and they are informed much better by their doctors than they used to be. So there a lot more people are invo- informed of it. They know that there isn't never going to be a red pill that can cure all for cancer. But I, I once had a, I once had I was on a conference one time and you know we we spoke from a media point of view what would be the greatest headline you know um that and we put up suggestions like for example we put up you know life has been discovered on Mars and then we discovered aliens are here um you know stuff like this or ghosts are real you know all these kind of really sensational um headlines you know and what uh, you know we spoke about what would be the most received. And actually, when we put up, there's a cure for cancer. Cancer won that vote. We all had a vote, you know, there's about 150 people. And cancer won that vote of the most, you know, that would bring in the biggest appeal uh, by about 60%. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it shows you that, like, forget about all those sensational ones, which would be fantastic. But I genuinely think that if we discovered life on another planet and it was like 3.5 light years away from Earth, I think most people would just go back to normal the next day. But if there was a cure for cancer, I think every single person in the world would want to know more about that because so many people, I'm sure, as you know, have been affected by it either directly or indirectly. Yeah, I don't know. I honestly don't know if I know a single person who hasn't been either directly or indirectly impacted by cancer. Um, And I think that there's something about um, just medical advancements in general that get a lot of people's attention. I mean, I'm not, I know maybe it's just my circles, but I, you know, people who I know that aren't in my field were coming up and asking me about the baby that was born with three DNA, as the headline said, that they had three DNAs. Um, It was, I think, over the summer. And it was a really big advancement advancement in, you know, uh, in vitro fertilization and and dealing with, you know, different uh, kind of a different sect of of the medical field. Um, But I feel like that I heard more people talk about that than you know, China landing on the dark side of the moon. It's like the holy grail for for health, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it used to be, I mean, when I was a young person at 18 or 19, the two of them, you know, they would have been cancer, the cure for cancer would have been fighting alongside the cure for AIDS. Now, we've never, we don't actually have a all-in-one cure of AIDS, but there's definitely the lifespan for people who are suffering from AIDS or even HIV positive. It's 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 indefinite. You can live, you, you know, you you can live a normal life mm-hmm. now, which is incredible. And I think that's actually one of the lesser known, fantastic medical advances. I think I don't think a lot of people know about that because it's just not as 
it's not as much in the news as it used to be. And whereas I think I probably we're probably going to see a situation with cancer in a similar way in that you may have to take a number of different medications over a longer period of time rather than, as I said, finding two or three big cures. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it already slightly is like that, depending on the cancer you have, depending on, you know, kind of how aggressive it is. There's so many like the thing with cancer, it's different than HIV because HIV is, you know, one virus. And yes, it does. The reason it's so you can't have a vaccine as of yet is because of its high mutation rate, but it's still not as multifactorial as cancer, which has a high mutation rate, has the ability to evade our immune system, has the ability to travel throughout our body, to be resistant to the drugs that we use. There's so many factors that, yeah, like it, to have one big breakthrough is just something I don't see exactly happening in the way that, you know, we would imagine something like a big breakthrough happening. Yeah. And you say that it's, 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 it's very um, adaptive, you know, it can, it can mm-hmm. change to whatever treatments you give traditionally we've always spoken about and of course there's the fear of it you know because you have the side effects that chemotherapy is you know since i was a young guy chemotherapy was always like you know if you're if you're having to take chemotherapy then it's serious and today is it still one of the more effective reasons ways of fighting it i personally don't know enough of the literature to really speak to that i Mm -hmm. do know that chemotherapy is still a big step i know a few people um who had uh been diagnosed and given chemotherapy to treat their cancer but i also know people who were just given to uh surgical resection and then immunotherapy Um, so i think it really just depends on you know the cancer you have and the kind of consensus that your healthcare team comes to but i don't know enough about it so i couldn't say me neither (laughs) i'm chancing my arm with that one kind so but i suppose at the end of the day there's a lot more options if someone is suffering from cancer because you know back then say 20 or 30 years ago even 40 years ago you just had that option and you know it was it was very devastating to the body but it seems to me i know people who have had chemotherapy and some of them haven't you know had any of the side effects that are kind of more famous you know with the hair loss and so on Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely there, there's more options that because and it's essentially because of all the research that's been going on and we know so much more about cancer, um, so we can make more informed decisions. Rather, physicians can make more informed decisions. Do Do you work with other fields in medicine that kind of like are they work that work in hand when it comes to doing this when it comes to fighting cancer? And I know I'm talking specifically about cancer a lot, but you know, in terms of say what you do, your department and your st- your type of science. Would there be other types of science that are becoming more prominent as well? For example, I mean, I suppose with DNA is becoming more and more of a of a key uh, section within the fight against cancer, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, kind of trying to elucidate what you know, what mutations a certain tumor has, or and what what that means for the cell, or you know, if we take cancer cells and we manipulate them see what effect that has um, on the genetic level and there's another level called epigenetics which is essentially looking at um, not the sequence of of dna but the accessibility of that dna which would translate into um, you know what genes are being expressed because if the gene is kind of all hidden away it's not going to be expressed but if it's out in the open then it's more likely that it'll be expressed so kind of looking at all those levels looking at um you know, genes can be expressed, but then not actually turned into protein. So looking at that's called like trans, like looking at the transcriptome, 
um, and what's happening there. Um, so like cancer research and molecular biology, again, it's very, not all encompassing, but it's very encompassing of many other sub disciplines. You could look into cancer from a clinical perspective, from a, an, an immune perspective, from, you know, uh, a genetic perspective, an epigenetic perspective. Um, there are a lot of options there. I'd say another field that I know of that's, you know, kind of making some head headway um, is just the other project in my lab. They're looking at immunology as it relates to pregnancy and inflammation, um, which again is just looking at uh, like the immune system and how the immune system is affected in during pregnancy when you have an inflammatory pregnancy. So um, yeah, there are a lot of very interesting um, kind of breakthroughs and, and research projects that are going on. Um, and yeah, I feel like molecular biology kind of has to be involved in a lot of them. I've been uh, kind of pushing you on these questions all the time. So apologies for that if I'm flying along. It's okay. Um, yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm still interested in molecular biology. So is there other fields that molecular biology is working in that are very prominent besides cancer therapeutics? Yeah. So, I mean, even just looking at, you know, like in vitro fertilization, like and, and optimizing, that would be a molecular thing because you can't see an egg, you can't see a sperm that need to that need to um you know interact in order to create an egg or not an egg uh, an embryo like you need to use a microscope for that so that would be molecular biology also just you know looking at how can we optimize in vitro fertilization or looking at genetic engineering and genetic editing and saying okay well we have these um tools that we can use to edit sequences of dna how can we use this to impact or cure or treat genetic diseases like Huntington's. Um, so that's molecular biology. So there are like a lot of different facets of it. And they're all focused. I mean, I'm talking a lot about health, but you know, you can look into plant research and plant biology, agriculture stuff. Um, the University of Guelph was an agricultural school. I never took any plant courses because I just really wasn't interested. But um, that a lot of that encompasses molecular biology, looking at vi like virology, anything to do with um, COVID nineteen and creating those vaccines. That was all molecular biology. So it is like a very important field um, that a lot of people, as you said, don't really realize is kind of at the forefront of a lot of the big breakthroughs that are happening. I heard an amazing story um, about the this the swiftness that uh, the covid vaccine was able to come around and you know you had your conspiracy theorists saying that oh you know they already had the vaccine because they created the the virus themselves you know this kind of nonsense mm -hmm. and like i was just reading uh, one of the articles in in the guardian newspaper about how that happened and it was just a case that um you know the, the basically the entire world got together at one point and said let's talk to each other much more more often yeah because you know you would have say a situation i'm sure you come across this now it's probably gone back to normal where you might have something, um, you know, a result and you want to get it checked. So you kind of give it to someone who's in another university on another side of the world and they'll say, I'll come back to you in three weeks time because they're obviously doing 150 things at the same time as well. But the success behind the success behind the, the, how quickly the, the vaccine was able to come around was that everybody just dropped everything and just said, OK, we need to talk to each other. So people were talking to each other on a daily basis rather than a weekly or a monthly basis. And, you know, there was no there was no conspiracy. It was just a case of people working together. And I'm wondering, um, 
<laughs> would you like it that way all the time and that you could kind of there was more focus on particular things and is there any one or two things that you would like to do that on huh um i mean it would be great yeah it would be great if everyone could help me with my master's project and my thesis uh, and do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some of the statistical analyses for me but um i do think it is important that we have you know people focusing on different things and then when it's necessary um like in in the example you gave of COVID, when it's necessary to bring those ideas together. Um, I, I don't think that it's good for everyone to kind of try to collaborate all the time, just because I, I would be wary of kind of creating that, um, just kind of like that, uh, the tunnel effect where, you know, we're all bouncing the same ideas off of each other. Whereas if we're working on our separate things, and then when we need to come together, we'll all have a lot more of a different perspective. So I think that that is really valuable. And I think that's what helped a lot with the COVID-19, um, you know, vaccine development and, and other treatment, the, de the development of other treatments um, for COVID-19 is kind of just having people with different perspectives. And you can only have those different perspectives if you're, you know, not collaborate. You, you take three, you take those three weeks to respond to, uh, to someone in a different lab. But I think it was very significant and amazing that how quickly they were able to do it. And it was, a, as you say, it's nice to have that in reserve should something else like that appear. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I suppose modern technology enabled it as well. You know, you and I are talking, you're on one side of the hemisphere and I'm on another side and we're talking live. And I presume in those cases, that would have been very handy that, you know, Zoom really came in at the right time, didn't it? Yeah, of course. And, and speaking of modern technologies, even just looking at... Um, in order to, you know, sequence the genome of, of COVID-19 and sequence um, the RNA sequence there, you need so, so much more advanced versions of sequencing technologies that, than we had, you know, in 2001 when the gene, uh, Human Genome Project was completed. You know, it took them billions of dollars. I think it was billions, maybe it was millions, but took them so much money and so many years, I, I think a decade um, to sequence a partial human genome. Whereas now you can sequence a human genome for around a thousand dollars. Wow. And you know, the COVID-19 genome, you could sequence it a thousand times over if you wanted to, which I'm sure they did. And you have, you know, so many more uh, computer uh, advancements and I mean, I'm not a computer scientist. I don't even, I don't know first thing about computers, but I do know that, you know, having those algorithms in place to help you kind of um, look through the sequences and, and go through, you know, best options for that mRNA vaccine, that uh, would have been extremely helpful. I don't know if it would have been able to be done 20 years ago when we didn't have the technologies we had have now. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. Even the basic sharing of information you know live information being shared so yeah. like results and stuff like that how quickly they're able to get their hands on it um you know i i guess when i've been talking to you now for half an hour and i'm thinking to myself really kind of science you know nowadays it's kind of taken for granted but i think a lot of medical science is really taken for granted and i think most people just expect these advancements to come along and still complain that you know, the common cold is still with us and, you know, those paracetamol tablets just don't get rid of your headache and stuff like that. But realistically, um, do you envisage maybe in the near future people being a lot more healthy and living a lot longer? I hope so. Um, I, I do think that people are considering 
health in a different perspective nowadays. But at the same time, we do have still a lot of, you know, chronic illnesses and just a lot of unhealthy habits in our societies. So I don't know if the if the answer is medical advancements. I, I, definitely, that's a big factor um, in when when you have you know diseases such as cancer or you know the Huntington's or things like that. But in terms of overall, just general health of the average thirty five year old, I think that 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 definitely comes down to personal choice and personal uh, accountability and just you know making that choice for yourself that you're going to lead a healthier life. And we have the best information than we've ever had in history on how to lead that healthy life, right? So I, I do think that it, it comes down to medical advancements, but it also comes down to just, you know, that personal that personal choice and accountability. The reason I asked you that question is because the big conversation is in the United States, and we're not going to get into politics, that's far from it, but the fact is that we have Joe Biden and we probably, if he doesn't go to prison, Donald Trump. Now, these men are particularly old. I mean, mm -hmm. they're in their mid-70s. And, you you know, I, I'm old enough to remember Ronald Reagan being a president and people like going aghast at the fact that this man was 60 years of age and was going to be president. Right. And, you know, he, he, he had issues with um, Alzheimer's disease towards the end of his presidency. Uh, yet he was a lot younger than, you know, Joe Biden. And I think it's amazing that there isn't actually more people complaining about the fact that he's so old. And I think that's because people in an everyday lives are having they have their grandparents around a lot longer than they used to mm -hmm. because you know prevention and then treatments are just keeping these pe people fitter and healthier so i think it's becoming a norm that you know what's in what what's an accepted and standard working age is going to go forward and that that's the one thing i don't know you're younger than i am and obviously a lot younger than i am i'm just wondering how you would perceive that but um you know we certainly somebody my age in my mid 50s i mean i'm i would be amazed you know as a to see, you know, people in 85, 95 still in, in government, for example. But these people seem to be proving the stereotypes wrong. And I'm just I'm just curious, as a young person, do you notice something like that and say, wow, that's that's health, you know, that's that's a modern health? Yeah, I think that when I think of the health, I think someone's mind, uh, you know, is definitely... It's impressive when that can hold up through time. But I think also their body. I think, you know, I see um, certain people in their 80s are able to still go and chop wood and then some um, aren't aren't able to. They don't have that same mobility as maybe, you know, when they were 60 or 50 um, or, you know, obviously much younger. So I do think that modern, you know, medicine is, is helping keep people going but I would be extremely happy if people started maybe taking a little bit better care of themselves before we needed those medical interventions. And, you know, they could they could uh, preserve the things that modern medical advancements can't yet. They need to take a Pilates then. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> or yoga. You, you can't beat them. Um, I have to ask you a question because um, this is important, I think, for anybody who's listening out there, maybe considering... Um, having a career in STEM what advice would you offer to students interested in pursuing a career in what we're all talking about today say molecular biology and immunology and of course cancer therapeutics and what any advice that you can give them and how would they prepare for that opportunities in the fields yeah okay so I think that the main thing I mean everyone always says it's about who you know um which to an extent may be true but I think it's more about 
who you email and who you reach out to. Just, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to someone like a professor or an industry professional if you think their research or career is interesting um, and you want to gain insight into their perspectives or have them as a mentor or just bounce an idea off of them. Those connections um, might lead to big opportunities in your field of interest one day and they might not. Um, I think, you know, especially to professors, um, profs really appreciate a student who takes initiative to reach out to them. And so you might find yourself with more opportunities to, you know, work with them, or they might be more inclined to write you a reference for, you know, a different opportunity. So I think that's one big advice that I would give um, to students. I, I wouldn't be where I was, it like doing what I'm doing if I didn't have that, you know, if I didn't email probably 50 professors to try and find um, research to do. Um, the other thing I would say is, kind of along the same lines is just say is yes to as much as you can. Um, there are so many opportunities for growth and professional development. And you just have to say yes, like I wouldn't be writing for the average scientist. I wouldn't be talking to you today on this podcast if I hadn't, you know, just saw that initial link on my LinkedIn and was like, oh, okay, that sounds really like a cool opportunity. I, I should look into it. Or, you know, there are so many things out there that we can do to kind of get more exposure into the field and then getting that exposure is what's going to ultimately allow us to make those more informed decisions on what we actually want to do with the rest of our lives that's great advice yeah, i couldn't give anybody better advice than that so well done i mean you've an old head and new shoulders <laughs> there uh can i ask you this question i ask of all of my guests before i let them go what are you reading watching or listening to at the moment okay so right now i'm reading the devil's hand by jack carr mm-hmm it's um, his fourth book in the Terminal List series. I highly recommend for anyone who really likes action, adventure. It's based off of a, an ex-Navy SEAL. It's great. I love it. Okay. Who, who do you imagine yeah. as an actor playing in that role? Is Tom Cruise a bit old and too small for that? or? <laughs> I, th <laughs> I think they actually already adapted it as a Prime Amazon, like Amazon Prime series. Oh, okay. I, and I think it's Chris Pratt. Oh, that makes works sense. works perfectly in my in my mind, yeah. Yeah, that makes but sense. I'm waiting to finish all the books to start re uh, watching the show. Ah, good yeah. idea. So you, because you're going to be vastly disappointed if, uh, if 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 normal rules apply, <laughs> they never make up to the move to the books, you know. And, exactly. Uh, yeah. And are you are you uh, and are you watching anything on? By the way, now that we're talking about TV or Netflix and Amazon, are you watching anything interesting at the moment? Not at the moment. I'm not really watching anything, but I'm waiting for um post the Dragon season two to come out. <laughs> On, I think it was on Crave on HBO. So mm -hmm. that's like the prequel for Game of Thrones. Oh, I see. Again, right, right. Season one, highly recommend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's funny. I'm 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 watching uh, at the moment Foundation, which is the Isaac Asimov adaptation, and it's in season three. And there's a, there's a lot of DNA and you know uh, cloning and stuff yeah. like that in it. And surprisingly, I have read some of his books. And despite the fact that he wrote the books, you know, over fifty years. Um, he was quite, you know, he's quite on the ball. <laughs> he kept it simple. I think yeah. that was, the, I think that was what he did. I think he did the right thing, but he kept it simple. And uh, you know, it's very interesting because it's 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 a kind of an epic thing that trans that transfers over, you know, six hundred years. So you, you know, you're watching a scene, and then suddenly it's one hundred and fifty years later. But because we're dealing with clones, the, the same actors are are in the role so it's very right. clever if any if you have even a passing interest in that sort of thing it's interesting to watch and had last question have you ever been to ireland <laughs> i have actually but i was i stayed i didn't get to go do much tourism i stayed in a little small town called uh edenberry 
Oh, no way. Eden Dairy's in yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. What were you doing in Eden Dairy? I have to ask. Um, it was for, uh, I used to compete in boxing. And so I was over there for a, for a training camp and then a fight at the end of the week. Wow. <laughs> we should have done yeah. a podcast on that <laughs> one. Left field. <laughs> We'd have to get you back for a podcast. Yeah, next that, time, next yeah time. I mean, Eden Dairy's not too sure. far. Yeah, Eden Dairy's not too far from where I am. It's, uh, it's um yeah, it's a rural town. It's <laughs> I think he's got mm -hmm. about two, yeah, two nightclubs. Yeah, well, yeah, I suppose so. Um, but uh, yeah, cheesy Max. So you, so you, so you're, you're female boxing. That's incredible. Okay, I'm gonna stop here because I keep you for another hour if I do that. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely have okay. to get you back for that, and and that's that's brilliant. That's a brilliant way to end the uh, podcast. Thanks so much for talking to me today. <laughs> okay yeah no thank you so much for having me yeah and thanks to everybody out there for listening to the comfortable spot today my name is ken sweeney and uh, i will talk to you very soon so take care y'all bye-bye